postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast, where our focus is redesigning Adventism. I mean, redesigning our culture, redesigning our thinking, redesigning our structures, redesigning our language, redesigning our frameworks, uh, so that we can be more effective at reaching a world that surrounds us that is completely different from the world that we tend to inhabit as cultural um, third-generation Adventists, which some of us might be. Uh, but anyways, welcome back, guys. Welcome back. I'm excited to be here. And I want to give you an update before um, before we get into today's episode, because I've actually decided to shift the way I'm running the podcast. Up to this point in um, the Story Church podcast experience, each week has essentially been kind of like a random topic. And I'll jump into the random topic, always related to church culture, always related to in some way, shape, or form to the types of things, conversations that we need to be having when it comes to reaching emerging Western culture. Um, But I'm changing that up a little bit now. So up to this point, it's kind of been random, you know, just conversations. But what I'm actually doing now is I'm going to start, uh, instead of doing just random topics each weekend, uh, or each week rather, I'm, I'm going to start running what is referred to as a podinar. Now, if you don't know what a podinar is, a podinar is a seminar that is in podcast form. Uh, and so not too different what I, from what I've been doing already, to be honest. But the difference is that the podinars are going to run by seasons. And so, for example, right now, the season that I'm currently running right now is uh, the Padanar series on understanding the secular mind. So this is sort of the type of thing that you would hear at a seminar, but you hear it in a podcast instead, and you can listen to it in the comfort of your Rolls Royce as you head into the city to work. Um, So the Padanar right now is focusing on understanding the secular mind, and that's pretty much going to be my focus until this season is done. And then once it's done... Um, it's it's already been placed into a playlist, so you can just go on the, the podcast and see the, the new playlist is Understanding the Secular Mind. Um, and so that becomes a playlist on its own. And when you go on my website, it's there available under the podcast link. If you want to listen to the Podinar series on Understanding the Secular Mind, here it is. Um, I've also got uh, a few other playlists I've created that aren't Padanars that you can check out if you want to. So there's a playlist with all the sermons of mine that are on the podcast. There's a playlist with all the episodes to do with social justice, um, all the episodes to do with youth ministry, uh, that sort of stuff. All the episodes to do with, um, uh, or, or rather, this is the one I was thinking of, uh, the top 13. I, I've got one that's the top 13 episodes that have ever been released on this podcast. So basically, what I'm aiming to do is turn the Story Church project into less of a less of a blog where I'm just kind of randomly talking about things, 
um, and more focusing on equipping and training. And so what these partners will do, these seasons, partner seasons will do is it'll allow me to dive into a topic, do a number of episodes on it, have it there as a single playlist that you can listen to all those episodes, um, and then do a different partner, right? So right now it's understanding the secular mind. Uh, in the future, I may do one on the interplay between mission and um, mission and psychological health or mental health, right? Like how do we, what's the interplay between effective mission and mental health? Um, we may do a session, a, a series just on social justice, a series just on, um, you know, studying the Bible with secular people today and the challenges that you face. So essentially from this moment forward, the podcast is going to operate pretty much as Padanars. Um, each Padanar, I don't know how many episodes, I guess they'll differ, but each Padanar is going to focus on one particular theme to train, to equip leaders and local churches. And uh, once that Padanar is complete, then I'll take a little break and then dive into the next one and it'll be promoted and advertised. Hey, we're going to be talking about this theme um, for the next few weeks or the next few months. So join us. Um, so that's essentially the move I'm making. And it's helpful because I, I can integrate what I'm doing at the Story Church Project easier with what I am doing at my local churches this way, because this then becomes a resource that I can uh, share with my leaders. Not that I wasn't sharing it before, but it's a little bit, like I said, before it was just random topics as the weeks came by. Whereas now it's going to be focused on particular themes, right? Um, so anyways, that's the big update. That's the big update, guys. I hope you, I hope you like that. I hope you enjoy it. Um, and I hope that it becomes uh, really meaningful for you and something very um, uh, practical that you can utilize in your own different spaces. So with that said, let me jump into uh, part three, because we are now in part three of what is officially now Podinar, the, the Story Church Project Podinar Season 1. Um, you know what? Let me be honest with you guys. I don't even know if Podinars and seasons are meant to go together, but you know what? I'm doing it. It's anarchy. Let's go for it, right? Um, so we're diving into episode three then. So this would be the Story Church Project Padanar season one, and it is understanding the secular mind. Uh, now, the first two episodes, we've we've touched on this already. And for some of you, what we've touched on in the first few episodes may seem a bit elementary and, and simple and, and easy. Um, and for others, it might be a bit challenging Whatever the case may be, I'm taking this step by step. I'm assuming that those of you listening to this Padanar series um, are completely unfamiliar with this topic. And so this is why I've been moving slowly and gently and repeating the sorts of things that those of us who are really familiar with this conversation have probably heard ad nauseum for so long. But basically, just to recap a little bit, at, up to this point, we've been talking about understanding the secular mind not as a problem that's out there for us to figure out and dissect and begin to exploit with some sort of gospel gimmick, right? But understanding the secular mind in the sense of inhabiting it, in the sense of appreciating its, its context, appreciating its colors, uh, inhaling its fragrance, so to speak. Because the bottom line is this, you do not really understand someone until you can defend their beliefs, even if you don't believe them, right? 
So it's, you know, like some people, I see this in the church all the time. It's like, hey, we're going to have a, a, a see, we're going to have a webinar or a seminar on postmodernism. And we're going to talk to you about the, um, the features of postmodernism. And then in that webinar or seminar, we're going to show you how those things are wrong. And for me, it just doesn't work. I don't know. It works for others. You know, I don't want to be an absolutist. For me, it, it doesn't really work. Um, because I still, I might understand some of the features of postmodernity from a webinar like that or a seminar like that, but I still don't understand postmoderns, right? And this is the thing, like we have to understand the complexity, the inherent complexity of the human being and the inherent complexity of navigating reality and life and experience and suffering and turmoil and chaos from a perspective that does not have the enthusiasm of Christ embedded within it. And as a pastor and as a person who was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church from the moment I was born, my parents were already Adventists. I've been raised in this church all my life. As much as I love secular culture and as much as I love connecting with and journeying with secular people, one thing remains true. I do not know what it's like to be one of them. I've never, ever existed within a framework in which the enthusiasm of Jesus was not present. Even in the moments in my life where I had doubt and the moments in my life where I was backsliding and the moments in my life where I had all kinds of questions and was maybe teetering on the edge of, uh, of apostasy, so to speak, um, I, I even then there was this enthusiastic framework through which I could perceive the world around me, the news, current events, um, you know, all, all, all kinds of stuff. It's like Jesus has always been this enthusiastic framework, uh, the point of articulation, so to speak, for how I interact and interpret everything else. And so when you are a bona fide secular person, who is raised in a secular society, in a secular family, in a secular school system, um, in a secular culture, and everything around you is embedded within the framework of secularism that does not possess the enthusiasm of Christ, right? How do you live life? Like what, how do you, you know, what does it look like to interact with suffering and with doubts and with chaos and with questions? You know, how do you interpret things like the pandemic? How do you interpret things like, you know, 9-11 and all these, you know, terrorism and wars? Like to, you know, how do you interpret them? Not just on a surface level, but on a very deep existential level. And this is what I, I really want to get across in this series is I don't know. And chances are, with the exception of a few of you, that you don't know either. So then the question is like, how can we reach this demographic, right? How can we reach this emerging culture if we don't actually understand them? And if we don't know what it's like to inhabit their world and we're rushing to the seminar or the book with here's why postmodernism is wrong and here's how you can expose its internal incoherence. It's like, okay, I'm not saying that there's no place for that discussion or that conversation because there certainly is. But can we stop long enough, just long enough to appreciate the beauty of the people that we're talking about, right? Like, can we just chill for a moment, put aside, like, just, just, just put aside the, we've got, we must be right. And, and, and we must win the argument. Can we just like lay that aside long enough 
to eat a burger with one of them, to have a barbecue, and to really listen to the words underneath the words. We're going to talk about the whole words underneath the words more in, in episodes to come. But that's essentially where we are right now. And so in episode one, we talked about how it's relational. It's a relational um, side-by-side approach that we, we have to engage secular culture with. It's this whole top-down, I'm the guru with all the answers, and I've been in the Bible for all these years, and listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. That doesn't work, and it's not going to work. Um, and so, and, and, and then again, in episode two, we began to peel back the layers of what we're really talking about here. We're not just talking about um, a worldview that can be dissected uh, in a laboratory and we can find all the problems with it and then just go out there and convince all the postmoderns that they're wrong, right? It's, it, it doesn't work that way. And so what we're being called to is essentially what to model Jesus' own example of an incarnational life, to inhabit the world, right? To, to be immersed in the experience of, of tangible, somatic life. Be connected with people and learn the rhythms that they move to and appreciate the sounds that they value and the smells, you know, and, and I'm being metaphorical here to some degree, uh, just to push the point, like inhabiting, you, you don't inhabit by sitting in your church or in your house with a book um, and, and, and having seminars and having a PowerPoint, right, and talking about the people out there. You inhabit by being with them. And so what I want to do in this episode then is I want to dig a little bit deeper into the mind of the secular man and the secular woman from the from my perspective, right? Because that's all I can really talk about here. I can't, I can't speak from a completely, you know, um, transcendent and absolute perspective because it's just impossible. So I'm just, these are just from my experience, the things that I've observed from being in these conversations and being in these relationships is like this is this is what I can see and it, it may differ actually in your particular setting and so what I'm calling you to do is don't take what I'm saying in this series and think ah oh, there is the blueprint there is the black and white there is no blueprint there is no black and white it's it's fragmented and detethered all over the place so please inhabit your local culture right get to know people there And as you do that, you'll be able to begin to decipher and peel back the layers for yourself, not the the, the surface layers, getting to the heart of what people are really searching for and contending with. Um, And so in my experience, uh, as I mentioned in the previous uh, episode, the, the, the one theme, if we could look at a philosophical theme through, you know, modern history. We can look at a philosophical theme that really captures the experience of secular thought. It it would be uh, Albert Camus' absurdity, right? The concept of the absurdity of life. Albert Camus was a a French philosopher, an existentialist. Um, In fact, most of the existentialists uh, like Sartre and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, Camus and and many others, Simone de Beauvoir and and others, to a large degree, reading them gives you perhaps the best window into the secular thought today. Um, this includes Marx as well, by the way. Reading them, you don't have to agree with them, but reading them gives you a good glimpse into 
the 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 ways in which people interact with and relate to the world around them. But I want to keep it simple. I want to focus on this concept of absurdity that um, Camus wasn't the only one who spoke of it, and there are others who speak of it even today. But um, essentially, just to keep it simple, um, and to summarize from last week, the basic idea of absurdity is that life is absurd, and that there is no rhythm to it that 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 is just yeah absurd there what other word do you <laughs> what other word do you put in there right it's absurd and what makes it absurd the central tenet that makes life absurd is that there is this gnawing desire for meaning and purpose that is flowing out of us and then there is this blank universe that mocks us for having that desire and it mocks us with the notion that everything is nothing and that there is no meaning and that there is no ultimate purpose to to our existence and so the tension between that meaninglessness of the universe because again remember there's no god in this picture so the tension between that meaninglessness and the the heart's desire for meaning that clash is what gives birth to absurdity the absurdity of of being right the absurdity of life and and Kambu really um tries to or 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 um attempts to dish this out in his in his book the myth of sisyphus which sisyphus being a ancient greek um myth where this this guy is punished by the gods to push this boulder up to the top of a hill i think he was a king i can't remember and he pushes the boulder up to the top of the hill and then when he gets up there it rolls back down and he starts over and he has to do this for all eternity and and camus is basically saying this is human existence right it's pointless we we work and we toil and we suffer and we slave and oh man the suffering and the difficulty of it all you get to the apex you get to the top and then it all just rolls down and starts over and the whole thing was pointless and so then the question is how does sisyphus not go crazy right how does sisyphus avoid insanity if he is condemned to eternal nothingness right to this eternal pointless task how does he avoid going crazy and and when we discover how sisyphus avoids going crazy we we begin to unpack some of the themes of how a secular mind that is detached from the enthusiasm of Christ um, attempts to bring some sort of order out of this chaos, this chaos consciousness that they inhabit. And, and that's probably the, the, the way in which at least it makes sense to me is there is this, you know, in, in, there's this enthusiastic consciousness in Christ that I've always enjoyed and then there's this chaos consciousness of, of emerging culture. Um, and that chaos consciousness is something I've never, ever, ever experienced, ever. Um, and I never will because the, the Christ at the center of my consciousness and the enthusiasm and the hope and the joy and you know the rebirthing of the universe and the great controversy coming to a close and you know ellen white the last book of the great controversy you know all the universe beast with one pulse you know one pulse of harmony everything's one again you know the atonement and god is love and and all of these themes that really bring everything back even in the midst of absolute pandemonium and cataclysm 
everything just sort of comes back to this central, unifying, harmonious beauty that God is love and that the atonement is is in motion and that it's all going to come to an end, right? So this is the Christ at the center of my conscious experience. And I, I don't have to be consciously thinking of that when I'm out in the world interacting with the world, right? I, I don't have to be consciously um, rehearsing those ideas. They're there, right? They're, they're under the surface, so to speak, and they're always at play. Um, and then there's the chaos consciousness of the culture that is essentially like, look, you know, we're, we're here and um, there's no grand theme to why we're here. There's no grand story. Uh, whether you take the atheistic view, that uh, the naturalistic view, that we're just mere accidents, um, or the you know sort of the more deist or perhaps agnostic view that uh, we were created, um, but uh, God is you know not a part of our meaning because He's sort of like created us and left us there. Um, you know, there's there's all these different views, but the bottom line is that there's a sense in which we are here, and it doesn't we're not here for any reason and here we are you know but here we are right like there's there's no purpose there's no we're not headed toward any ultimate conclusion or um or or epiphany of any sort we're we're just here and life is full of suffering and and emptiness and unfairness and how do we make sense of it Right? How do we how do we prevent ourselves from going insane? And and of course, one of the common things that I'm seeing it a lot more. It's been it's been around for a while, but I'm seeing it a lot more now. Is this um, conversation on the end of the universe? Right? This this sort of concept that um, the universe is is leading toward its own self demise. Right? That it's not it's not eternal. And that even though it's expanded from the Big Bang, it, it, is, it is contracting and eventually will cease to exist altogether, right? The, the heat death of the universe is one way I've heard it put. Um, and, and so there's this idea that in time, not only our world, but our entire universe is going to collapse into non-existence. And it will be as though we were never here. And if life starts again at any point... Um, and new life evolves into fully conscious, self-aware, autonomous beings, they will have zero clue that we were ever here. And so what does this basically mean? It means that, um, you know, it means that there's not really much meaning or point to it all. So, you know, how then? How do you deal with life? How do you deal with death? How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with meaning, right? And so from my experience, as um, as I've observed and interacted with the culture around me, uh, what I have seen is that there are three primary ways in which the secular culture that inhabits this chaos consciousness, there are three primary ways in which they attempt to bring some sort of meaning or some sort of order out of the chaos if we want to use that language right there's three primary ways and it's it's always fun when you when you talk about these you know like three primary ways because you block them you 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 know explain them as little blocks but the truth is these three primary ways are not necessarily neat little blocks uh, one particular person can bounce around all three of them 
um, or two of them or mix and match them into some sort of a potluck. So yeah, just take this as a concept to help direct and guide the conversation, not necessarily as a hard and fast label for how human beings function because we're much more complicated than than labels. Uh, but here are the three primary ways in which I have observed um, the secular culture uh, interacts with reality. The three primary ways are amusement, uh, number one, duties, number two, and transcendence, number three. Um, and this is concept isn't entirely unique to me either. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard in his, uh, in his concept of the stages on life's way is very similar to this. Um, uh, he sees it a little bit differently, and I, I'll explain that later. But um, essentially, he, he kind of has the same concepts. They're just framed differently. But amusement, duties, and transcendence. So what do I mean by this? So number one, let's talk about amusement. So um, when it comes to this chaos consciousness, right, and, and this pursuit of meaning in a universe devoid of meaning, for some, uh, that meaning is pursued in amusement. Uh, so what this means is that life and all of its energy is pretty much devoted to partying. Um, you, you know, for some people, it, it's depravity and hedonism. Uh, and, and these are the ones who, like, they're pushing this giant boulder up the hill, right? And so how do they deal with the meaninglessness of it all? Well, it seems pretty obvious that you can numb the meaninglessness through materialism and entertainment and the pursuit of pleasure, right? So you could think of things like sex or, you know, um, cheap novels, Fifty Shades of whatever. <laughs> There's so so many of them. I, I don't even know what all the titles are. Um, pornography, um, alcohol, gambling, drugs. Uh, these are sort of the more hedonistic examples. Um, and then you have sort of the more classy and yet nevertheless amusement-driven example where people are pursuing the accumulation of temporal goods or experiences, um, and anything, really, anything, essentially, to distract the mind, right? Anything to medicate the mind against the absurdity of life. And so with the amusement crowd, and like I said, people don't generally, some people might stay in one or the other, but people don't generally, people generally move around. They don't generally stay static because we're, we're not naturally static beings. But basically, within the within this amusement crowd, what you have is is a, is a group of people that they they appear full of joy and excitement, but underneath there is this sort of rotting gash, right? This festering but neglected um, agony. And uh, John Mayer, he's my favorite musician, by the way. I absolutely love John Mayer. He's awesome. Come to Perth, John Mayer, when the pandemic's over. I'll come see you. Um, so John Mayer in his in his ballad "Something's Missing," I think he captures this really well. Right. Um, if you've never heard the song, go on YouTube after and put in John Mayer, something's missing. And, um, and there's this line that I absolutely love because uh, he's asking in the song over and over again. He's like, I've got all these things, but something's missing. But there's this one line in the song that I love where he says, and I quote, how come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think it means? End quote. Now, what John is capturing there is the reality of the amusement-driven life, right? It's lots of fun, and it's so exciting. But in the end, this mode of navigation fails because the amused is not really dealing with the insignificance or the absurdity of being, right? Um, 
I think the, who was it? Yeah, the Scottish writer Bruce Marshall, uh, he put it this way, um, and I quote, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God, end quote, right? And so this is essentially what's happening with with um, when we follow, and, and I, I refer to these, you know, amusement duties, transcendence, I refer to these three as modes of navigation, right? Modes of navigation, things or approaches or models that we use to attempt to navigate the absurdity of being, right? Uh, and so with the model or the mode, the amusement mode of navigation, uh, it just always leaves you empty because when the amusement is done, you're once again confronted with the absurdity. And the reality is you can't amuse yourself 24-7, right? You can't, you can't be permanently high 24-7. At some point, you've got to come back down to reality and face the absurdity. And so when, when people navigate life this way, uh, it can lead to to addiction because essentially you begin to live for the next for the next amusement that's going to allow you to navigate the absurdity. You haven't really confronted the absurdity, um, and so this is one way in which secular culture is contending with the absurdity of life. The other is is duties, right? Duties. So duties. Um, is this is the sphere in which the, the secular mind invests itself in the responsibilities of work, career, financial success, familial commitments. Um, these are the people who invest fully in the pursuit of accomplishment, right? They dedicate their life to discipline, to positive thinking, systems, uh, the whole self-help, Tony Robbins world, right? They do they do well in their jobs. They get awards. They earn PhDs, uh, and they live a fairly strict and ethical life. And I think it's important to recognize this. You know, some people think, oh, secular people, they're all just you know out there sinning and having fun. It's like actually, <laughs> not really. Um, there are a lot of secular folk in this world who are more moral than you or I will ever be. Um, and and. Such people, actually, um, in, in my experience, those who sort of fall into this mode of navigation, they look at their secular peers who are navigating life through amusement, and they see them as wasted potential, right? They, 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 they judge them sometimes for their stupidity. Um, but what the duty-bound man fails to realize is how similar he is to the one who chases pleasure, right? Both are pushing a giant boulder up a hill for no obvious reason, only to have it roll back down again. Both are repeating the same futile chapter, um, only worse than Sisyphus because Sisyphus was immortal, but you know people know that they are mortal and their time is running out, right? Um, and so with each passing day, the grave is nearer and there's little time. And, and what do you do with that little time? Like, what's the point of it all? And so both suffer. And they both have to deal with this incongruity of a soul begging for meaning against an indifferent reality that whispers, hey, there actually isn't any. Now, the approach, again, might be different, but the goal is the same. And both sooner or later find themselves awfully unsatisfied at best or broken beyond repair at worst. Because whether you're chasing, you know, the buzz of alcohol or the buzz of the new promotion, when it's all said and done, according to this absurd reality that we inhabit it was all for nothing so then the final mode of navigation is uh, what i refer to as transcendence and so this is where we medicate the absurdity of life via transcendence or spirituality right so for for people in this category or in this stage of of being meaning is found in a spectrum of ideals right so it could be the liturgy of traditional religion 
Uh, it could be the free spirit of adventure, free spirited, sorry, that didn't come out right. Free spirited adventure of self-defined spirituality, right? This is the appeal of paganism, by the way. Um, paganism is, is appealing because you basically, there is no Bible, you write your own, right? You construct, you self-define your own spirituality. Um, and so for this class, the pain of the absurdity of being is transcended, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a pushing, a pursuing for the beyond. And they often try and justify the chaos of life with platitudes of an afterlife or life's pain as preparing us for a future elevation into a greater dimension of existence. Um, and so in this view, the person dedicates their life to the transcendent, um, to rituals, to paths that must be taken to escape the state of absurdity in the end. And, and these are essentially the kind of people, even though Karl Marx was specifically <laughs> talking about the church and Christianity, um, it nevertheless has application here when, when he referred to, or when he made this famous statement that religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Um, and what he meant by that is that religion masks the pain of reality by promising a pie in the sky in which we place all of our hopes but it says nothing about the real day-to-day -day absurdity we must still face. Um, and so in the transcendent approach, what you'll, what you'll find is there's, there's this aim to reach beyond and escape the now, um, to be present with a different state or a different dimension of being. Um, and ultimately, it crashes as well. And so what I found is that regardless of which approach a person takes or if they oscillate between two or all three, the experience tends to be the same. Um, and the, the, only, the only exception I will look at in a few, uh, in a, in maybe the next episode or the one after that, where I talk about um, um, the equilibrium, right? There's an equilibrium approach where you take duties, uh, amusement duties and transcendence, and you blend them into a well-balanced equilibrium. But we'll talk about that later. Um, but basically, what we find here is people people are trying to find a reason to justify going on in the face of a hollow, sterile, and empty existence, right? They're fighting for a reason to get out of bed in the morning, for to have a skip in their step, to have purpose that animates their being. Um, and and postmodernity, right? You take a, take a look at postmodernism. It may, in fact, and I'm, I'm willing to concede, it may, in fact, be an ironic and dark vision of the future. But the philosophy itself fails in the very real experience of life that calls humans, regardless of creed, to pursue enthusiasm, right? To pursue this tenuous better that lies somewhere beyond. And as a result, the, the, the culture that we are currently inhabiting, you know, right now in 2020, um, we, we are on the path, right? We are in a transition point um, toward what uh, some philosophers are codifying as meta-modernity, right? This is new approach, right? Postmodernism is fading, right? This is meta-modernist approach that's beginning to, um, to, to emerge, and we're seeing it in art and pop culture and, and different spaces. Uh, and, and what meta-modernism does is it attempts to recapture the enthusiasm that postmodernism lost. But when you look deep within the meta-modernist ideals, what you find is that there is still a fundamental premise that life is empty. But rather than trying to fight that emptiness, this absurdity is increasingly embraced 
as a natural part of life. And, and I want you guys to really, we're going we're gonna to hone in on that more in future episodes because it's so important to recognize like uh, the absurdity of life is increasingly embraces natural part of life. In fact, and here's the plot twist, it's increasingly embraced not only as a natural part of life, but as a beautiful part of life, as the thing that gives life its beauty. You say, well, how can this clash between meaninglessness and meaning uh, give life its beauty? It doesn't make any sense. Well, uh, that's because you're not secular. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit more because the last thing I want you guys to think leaving here is that, oh man, this absurdity of life that people are contending with, what a depressing and horrible way to live. And I've got the gospel and I, you know, if I share Jesus with them, they'll see, you know, honestly, it's not that simple because absurdity, absurdity, which I'll talk about more in, in the next episode, as I've said a, a thousand times already, um, absurdity is something to be celebrated. And it's something that has inherent beauty. And so we have to understand that before we can begin to map out a missiological approach. Um, so basically, yeah, um, the culture is settling in, in meaninglessness and hopelessness as this natural state of things. There's, you're not going to fight it. You just accept it. And once you've accepted it, then you try and manufacture some sense of meaning in it. Because the 80 years are, you know, going to pass away pretty quickly and then there's not going to be a memory of us so let's push on to what i don't know let's just push on just because and it's in the midst of this experience right of balancing the chaos of being with the impulse for the beyond that the culture finds itself in absurdity and so when you understand this all right, here, here's, here's, here's where we're getting to the crux of it. How long have I been talking? 37 minutes, all right. When you understand this, listen to me, Seventh-day Adventist. When you understand this, when you understand everything I have just described, when you are able to inhabit this worldview for just a moment, the traditional Adventist dialectic emerges as awfully ridiculous, right? Here comes the Adventist with conviction. The Sabbath is not the first day of the week, but the seventh. Now you tell me what human being contending with the absurdity of life is going to care. Or, hey, you know, why are there so many denominations, you ask? Uh, no, I didn't because nobody does anymore. Did you know that ghosts aren't real? That the only true church is the Seventh-day Adventist remnant? That archaeology proves the Bible is true? That evolution is false? Oh, and while we're at it, get a load of who the little horn is and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. And by the way, jewelry is bad and tattoos and Hollywood and syncopated beats. Let me be a bit sarcastic here. <laughs> what joyous revelations not right when you understand what the culture is contending with when you look through the window into the soul of the culture of a culture drowning in the absurdity of life you discover that what we adventists find so interesting what we fight about and scream about what what we allow to divide us and distract us the culture doesn't notice long enough to even process and I pray, I pray that the irony doesn't elude you, right? That a people, 
us with the antitoxin to absurdity, Christ, with a real answer to the suffering of being, to the heart's cry for meaning and significance, with something truly val valuable to offer a generation suffering in chaos, that we would be so distracted and obsessed with these obscene, ridiculous notions. That we would be so out of touch with the heart of the lost that we would be preaching a message that no one is listening to all the while thinking we're being faithful to the call. What are we supposed to do with this irony, right? The irony of a people with hope but distracted with obscenities while a culture without out hope passes us by drowning in absurdity. Ah, I love this passage from Ellen White. Christ bids you look to him as the illuminator of your darkened souls. I think this is really powerful revelation embedded within this statement. And I'm going to close with this. That the upside down we all contend against, right? This chaos that we all contend against. It's not to be medicated with amusements, duties, or religion. It's to be navigated in relationship. That there is a whole other way of interacting with the absurdity of being that invites us into an intimate and personal encounter with one who can illuminate the darkness and provide us with everything our hearts are searching for. Because in truth, our hearts were made for intimacy with him. And so in this vision, we're not hiding from the chaos, we're confronting it. Not alone, but in relationship with the one who brings order out of absurdity. I love that statement by C.S. Lewis. Everybody quotes it now, so you know it's gotten a bit cheesy. But hey, it's so true. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So here's my point as I close this week's episode. If we want to keep having this conversation about reaching the secular mind, we first have to learn to sit with its lament with its modes of navigation from the despair of absurdity. Because the truth is that despite the angst that I've just described, the culture is generally happy. The perceived escapes are working for many. They go through life empty thinking they're full. They live each day with expectation despite the fact that they have nothing to expect. The culture, despite its absurdity, is not miserable and collapsing. It's far too distracted for that, too amused, too occupied, too abstracted by its perceived escapes. And the church's message is hardly even noticed. In a way, I'm kind of glad. I don't want the culture to notice the stuff that we say and the stuff that we fight about and the stuff that we think is important because it's so ridiculous. I don't want them to hear us having these conversations. But here's the thing. If we learn to understand the angst and its escapes and we aim to interact meaningfully with them, we lay aside the argumentation and the sermonizing and instead begin to explore the biblical invitation to redemption together in friendship, in connection. If we navigate the mind of the culture and learn to appreciate it, 
we will be able to see not just how laughable the message we offer and proclaim is in the eyes of those we've been called to reach, but we will discover that for too long, we've been preaching to ourselves all the while thinking we're preaching to others. And only then, only then will we be capable of reimagining our message and mining from it a worthwhile pathway to the existential sorrow of the age. Only then. And so this is why in this series, Understanding the Secular Mind, I don't want to dissect post or meta-modernity and give you all the arguments for why it's wrong. That's the easy thing to do. Instead, what I want to do is I want to call you to inhabit the mind, inhabit the culture, inhabit the experience of the secular being. And when you feel its angst, when you feel its pain, when you feel its hopes and its celebration and its frustrations, when you sense that, when you manage to finally get a taste of it, then and only then are you actually prepared to reframe and adapt the message and the method to reach them for Christ. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. I've gone on for long enough. It's 45 minutes in. Wow, this is the longest episode of the Potternar season one so far. Isn't that cool? It's fun to say that, Potternar season one. Okay, guys, I'm going to let you go. I'll catch you next week. We're going to talk some more about this. There's a lot more to discuss. So I'll catch you next week for episode number four, Understanding the Secular Mind. Take care and God bless.